0: My name is Dwight Brown. I am not the interim pastor or the pastor-to-be, but the pastor that was. (laughs) I am the retired old pastor that was called out of retirement into active duty for a few more months and am in the process of very quickly turning that over to Sid fully. He gets a couple of weeks rest as he starts, but then he's taking it on, and we're glad you're here. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're looking at verse 3 down to verse 21, so a lot of verses to cover this morning. And the title of this sermon, which has changed a couple of times in my mind because I am the older pastor, is Four Strong Motivations, and I think I would add this, and Means, Motivations and Means for godly living. It's interesting, these four motivations and means come between a list of how we are to live. Sid was on that last week. Five key things, and there's a sixth one here that introduces these motivations. Motivations are, or incentives we might call them, are something we have not only for us as believers, to live a godly life. We have them in the world. I think of areas like the military, the job market, education, sports. All of those areas have incentives and motivations to do better in those arenas. In sports, there are all kinds of things that they motivate you with to try and be the best, to be number one. In the job market, to keep your job, to rise. In the same thing in the military. When I was in the military, you got an efficiency report every few months. And you were told if you come out high on these re- efficiency report, you can make the next rank faster. You need to do well. That's an incentive to do well, that you can get promoted quicker than those around you. But what is interesting, when you look at the motivations in Scripture, the motivations in Scripture are similar, but they're far more important. They're different in this way. They also become a means to get to that motivated end, and they also are absolutely necessary for you to finish the race and finish it well. So we've got four of these motivations and means in between, more commands that are coming. When we get to verse 21, the verse reads this way, and be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Submission. And then comes submission within the family, within the marriage, within the workplace. More commands again, but we're stopping today just to look at these incentives and motivations and further means for godly living. There are four here. God's judgment, number one. The role of God's judgment as a motivation for godly living. This is similar to in the role of parenting, when they, you as parents give your children an incentive to do what parents ask you to do. And that incentive is, if you don't do what we ask you to do, you're going to get spanked. Any children ever experience that? Want to raise your hand? I know I have, growing up. And I think I remember one of my parents saying, this is harder for me than it is for you, and I went, oh yeah? I'm not sure what they were saying. God's judgment is a motivation for godly living. Secondly, the role of God's light as a motivation for godly living. Third, God's wisdom motivates us to live godly. And finally, the Spirit's filling. These are the four things that we want to look at. But we're going to go back and read, first of all, look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 5, Ephesians 5, and we'll kind of pick up where Sid ended and then see how verses 3 and 4 lead into the exhortations. It's actually 3 and 4 are the sixth command. That Sid was dealing with. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walk in love. And then comes a couple of hard verses right after this, which form the six of the specific commands that begin back in chapter 4. But do do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For thus you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now we'll stop at that point because that finishes up the last of the commands. Do not let immorality or impurity or greed or even be named among you, much less practice them. And that ties in with the motivations, the incentives that come beginning with verse 5, when he says, for know with certainty that no immoral man or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He goes on to say in in verse 6, That those who commit these things should know the wrath of God is going to fall upon you. That's a motivation. It's a motivation for us to get serious about living the Christian life. And that's where we want to start this morning. We want to look at this first one, the role of God's judgment as a motivation for godly living. How does that? It's a negative one, isn't it? But it is a serious one. And what God is saying is, I want to exhort you in your walk that there will be judgment upon you if you do not succeed, if you do not carry it out, if you do not live righteously. There is going to be consequences for you. And those who profess Christ, like Simon the sorcerer, back in Acts chapter 8, those who profess Christ and are baptized like he was, he made a profession, he was baptized, and then Peter has to say with him to him within a few verses of that profession and baptism, when he wants to buy the work of the Holy Spirit, Peter has to say to him, I am not sure that you're even a believer. You better get on your knees and repent before God and hope that there is still hope for you. You are in serious condition. And that's what's going on in verses 5 and 6. Look at it again with me. Know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. One who continues to practice those sins and live in them without confession, without remorse, without repentance, needs to know that they will have no inheritance with God, no no matter how many professions of faith they have made, no matter how many times they've gone forward in a church, no no matter how many times... They've called out to God. If they continue in sin, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you, verse 6, with empty words. That's what a person like that would be doing. Yes, I've trusted Christ. I went, I signed a card. I went to the, the front of the church. I prayed, the elders prayed with me. I am a Christian because I have expressed faith. If someone lives continuing in sin, what they show is their words were empty. They weren't real. There was no life transmitted to them. None. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of God disobedience that's a motivation is it not to live godly to know that not only might you get spanked if you don't live godly you may not inherit the kingdom and God's wrath will come upon you if your words are simply empty obviously these kinds of sins, immorality, impurity, greed, covetousness. And it's interesting, isn't it, how greed and covetousness relate to immorality and impurity? It's your thoughts for yourself. It's you make yourself, that's why he calls it idolatry, because you become your own God and you do what satisfies you, no matter what God says. You do what you think is going to make you happy. That's greed and covetousness and idolatry because you become God in your life and you think anything that you want to do is okay. What is interesting, Paul in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, gives, it's not just these sins, by the way, and the practice of these sins that will lead to no inheritance and wrath It is all kinds of sins practice. Galatians uh, 5, 19 to 21, I won't take time now to read you the list, but there's a long list of all manner of sins. And Paul says, if you practice these sins, if you habitually live in them without repentance, without remorse, without confession, know this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we could debate all day long. Can you lose your salvation? Can you have it and lose it? Or is it that you never had it? I'm on one side of that. We could debate that. But the issue is, if you practice, live habitually in sin, know this. This ought to be a motivation to anyone who has claimed to know Christ and continues to do their own thing. That's number one in this list and it's, and it's a very serious one. It's a negative one, but it is a strong motivation to listen, just like the parents to their child. If you don't obey me, you will have privileges taken away and you will get spanked. My wife, teaching kindergarten at CSCS a few years ago, had a lady come in and my wife was talking to her about her five-year-old son And she was telling this mother that he hasn't been very good about following directions. And she said, you know what? She said, I was afraid of that. She said, I I see this at home, and I just can't do anything. I I, I just can't get it under control. And you know what my wife said to her? What will you do when he's 15? And she went, I don't know. You better start getting control at five and motivating them with the negative clause of discipline. Well, then comes the second thing, the role and place of God's light as a motivation for godly living. Let's look at that in verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. Don't partake with the people that are out there that are living in sin and doing evil. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but... Instead, even expose them. Light exposes what's in the darkness, does it not? For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The second motivation and means is that we are light. We are light. And we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness, and we are not to partake in any of the sinful activities around us. No partaking whatsoever. We are to remain free of that. We are to be a witness in a lost world. We are to have relationships with lost people. Paul is certainly not saying that here. In fact, you can't lead someone to Christ unless you have relationships with them when they're lost. You must get to know them. You must shine the light of Christ on them. But do not partake in their wickedness. The fruit of this life consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth which are produced in us as we grow in the knowledge of what is pleasing to the Lord. But there's really a hard part in this one about being light. Did you notice that? We're to shine the light of Christ in the darkness and we are to shine the light of Christ on the darkness. On the darkness. This is hard. It's one thing not to participate in the deeds. I get that. But now I'm not only not to participate, I'm to shine the light of Christ on the darkness when it raises its head. How many of you like to do that? I didn't think so. I taught this once in a seminary class, and I got resistance to this. People said, what? I'm supposed to talk to people about their sin. I'm to shine the light of Christ on their sin and point it out to them. And I said, yes, you are. It's hard, but you can't lead someone to Christ without pointing out their need. That's the first step in the gospel presentation. It's need, it's provision, and then it's your response to that. And if you pass up need, you have ruined the whole gospel presentation. By the way, it's costly. You want to ever ask John the Baptist in heaven sometime what shining the light on sin cost him? His life. When he shined the light of God upon the sin of King Herod by taking his brother's wife. What happened to John the Baptist? Not too many days later, his head was cut off. Did he do the right thing? Yes, he did. You cannot get away from this command. You not only are not to be a partaker, you're to shine the light of Christ. And shining the light of Christ is so important upon the sin of sinners. Because again, it's part of the gospel. The Lord taught me a lesson. Some of you have heard this. So please endure another time. Remember, it's the old pastor that's back. When I was in the Air Force, my last assignment after Vietnam before I went to seminary was at Andrews Air Force Base in the systems command and in the headquarters. And I was the administrative officer for two generals across the hall and a full colonel that I worked for. And a lot of times at lunch, we would meet in the outer office where the secretaries were, outside the two generals' offices, and have discussions and, and all kinds of things went on there. Well, one particular day, and I was there, I was part of it. There must have been about eight of us in there. And the discussion came up about somebody in the D.C. area that had stolen a million dollars and what the crime was and what was happening to them. And all of a sudden, somebody said in the midst of this room, I want to tell you something if there were a million dollars on this desk and there was nobody looking and nobody around to see this, every single one of us would take it and steal it. And everybody started saying, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I'm in there as a Christian, about ready to get out of the Air Force and go to seminary. And I thought, Lord, what do I say? What do you want me to say? And finally, after a period, I guess, of silence, I said, I would not take it. And they all looked at me like, What? And I said, Because someone is looking. Someone sees. And it's God. And I can't do that before Him. I don't think that went over so well. I think some people thought, Who is this guy? What is wrong with him? What does what he, does he think he's different than the rest of us? But I could not remain silent because I felt like that was to partake in what they were saying. And acknowledge, yeah, I would do it too. You shine the light on sin. And the interesting thing, he goes on to say, notice this, this is so important. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Here's a key motivation in this shining the light is we, by shining the light upon the darkness, have an opportunity to lead people to Christ and see them become light. And if nobody shines the light, folks, nobody is going to get converted. You shine the light to make the first step of the gospel. You have a need, and you're under condemnation, and you need to come to the Savior who died so that you might have life. So the second motivation here is light. And then there's this third motivation, which is wisdom. And the wisdom of Scripture, you can break down into two parts. One is general wisdom in which every one of us are to partake. That is, we go to the word of God and there are specifics about how to live, how to walk, and that applies to every Christian and we must live them out. That's the general wisdom. And then there is particular wisdom, which is, deals with the areas of, should I get married? Who should I marry? What job should I take? What course should I study to prepare me for my future? Where should I live? That's one that I'm fairly familiar with right now as we wrestle with this particular issue. But here's here's what he says. Look at verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as an unwise man, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Making the most of your time. Jonathan Edwards said, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way that I can. You ever prayed like that? I don't want to lose one moment of time. Make the most of your time because the days you live in are evil. And not only Were they evil in Paul's day? They are evil in our day, and they will always be evil until Christ comes back. And I think I could make a bit of a case that they're getting more evil, at least in this nation, by the day, by the week, by the hour. So he's saying, make the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's how you live wisely. You understand what the will of the Lord is. Where do you get that? Scripture. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is God breathed or inspired. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God might be complete, adequate for every good work. How much time do you spend in the Word of God for yourself? Not just Sunday mornings, what the pastor has to say. How much time do you personally, if you need wisdom, and that should be a motivation and give you motivation to live a godly life and be a means to your living a godly life, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? I want you to think about that. The word of God is the source of wisdom. All scripture is God-breathed. And we need it, and not just Sunday mornings, if all you're counting on is a message on Sunday morning, my friends, your motivation is extremely weak. You need to be in the word of God regularly, daily, all your life, because it is a means, it is a motivating factor to your living a godly life. Start getting in the word. Some people, and I'm gonna give you a personal illustration here, wonder why somebody my age would enjoy teaching and preaching the word after they even retire. Do you know why it is for me? Because it's my life. It's so important in my life and what God has called me to do. That's why I take every opportunity that God gives to teach a class, lead a small group, be involved in ventures, preach a sermon, because the Word of God, we can't do without it. We can't do without it. You need to be in it. You need to study it. This is a motivating factor. It is a means for godly living, for finishing the race, finishing the course, finding out what God's general will is for my daily life in relationship to sin and righteousness, finding out what God's will is for my life in the particulars. What does he want me to do? And when does he want me to do it? And finally the role the role of the spirits filling as a motivation for godly living. Four things we see here that are part of this and that is fellowship, worship, gratitude, and then the submission. Let's look at these verses verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. You lose control of all your senses. But, he goes on to say, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine and let wine take over your life. Be filled with the Spirit. But even then, don't think of this filling as though it were like, it's no longer me involved, it's just the Spirit. And it's kind of like being under the influence of alcohol, but no, I'm under the influence of the Spirit. Yeah, that's partially true. But do you know what the final fruit of the Spirit is? What's the final fruit of the Spirit? What? Control. Being in control. When you're full of the Spirit in your life, you're in control of your life. When you're full of alcohol, you, you can't control anything. The alcohol is in control. You don't have your senses. But when you're full of the Spirit, you are in control by the Spirit. And he goes on to say, speaking to one another, filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. There's the worship, fellowship, worship, always giving thanks, gratitude for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be in subjection to one another. What Paul is saying to us is the greatest motivation and means to continue on course, to finish the race, to be a godly Christian, to be assured we're His, to know that one day we're going to be with Him for all eternity, is to be filled with the Spirit. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 3 of this book? He said, I pray for you, Ephesians, all the time that you be strengthened with power in the inner man, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a daily thing that we go to God for. Lord, fill us, strengthen us, be in us. This is why speaking to one another in psalms and hymns is so important. We encourage each other with the word of God to be filled with the Spirit. And we sing worship to God because we are filled with the Spirit. And we give thanks to God because we know that all things come from Him and we thank Him in all things. We don't necessarily thank Him for all things because there's some bad things. But we know that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 28 to 30, He works in us for good. In all situations, he uses them for good. And so we give thanks, and we also submit. These are so important, so important. Motivations, living a godly life, knowing that there are things that are to motivate us, and if we ignore them, we're not motivated to live for Christ. Now think of these four things again. Let's put them in place. The four things that are here are, number one, negative, judgment. If you go live your own way, you are coming under the judgment of God, and you may not have an inheritance at all. And you are light, and the light is shined in you. And you were darkness, but you've become light. Now shine that light. Shine that light. You will be a vessel for God, even in bringing people to Christ, as you shine the light in the darkness, and you reprove it. The word "expose" there in there in in this in the Greek could also be translated rebuke or reprove. You rebuke the darkness, and you see what God is doing. This is a motivation to continue, so that you're not part of the of the darkness but are shining the light. And then there is the wisdom of God, another motivation. You need to spend time in the Word. And finally, you need to be filled with the Spirit and living by the power of the Spirit every single day. That's how you fulfill the commands. That's how you live in a way that honors Christ. That's how you live a a life of light that shines in the darkness and can be a means of Christ using you to bring people to himself. Have you ever thought about the need for these motivations? They're not only motivations and they're means and they are absolutely necessary for us to get down the road and finish the race. We need to apply these means. We need to look at them. We need to review them. We need to dive in and apply them to our lives. It takes our, this is why the Lord said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You have a part to play. Do you take the motivations seriously? Do you see that they are means of God to get you down the road? They are. And I pray with all my heart that I and you and each one of us here, and every believer on the face of this earth will take these exhortations seriously and by the power of the Spirit, apply them, live them out, and let God use them in us to change us into the image of Christ each day. Amen? And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth, the power. We pray that you would take these verses this morning and help us apply them to our lives every day and we will give you the praise and the glory for what you do in us to change us and transform us and keep us on the track keep us running the race so that we might finish well and say with Paul I have fought the good fight I have kept the faith I have finished the course And there is laid up for me in heaven the crown of righteousness. May that be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.